Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 281. Interview with Gene Cavellos of the Odyssey Writers Workshop. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. And this is Moses Siragar. And Brent is not with us today. I want to say that Brent is still a part of the show. It's just that his work schedule does not line up with ours. And at least ours right now, that could be changing. Um, But Brent, you are with us in spirit, and he has a couple interviews coming up in the next few weeks. So it'll be good to have his voice on the show. Um. Today, we have Jean Cavellos of the Odyssey Writers Workshop here. She's going to tell us about the creation of the workshop, uh, how the, the class works itself, how it's changed over the years, and then uh, some of the online classes. If you can't take six weeks off to go to the campus in New Hampshire in the summertime, you can still do some online classes uh, during the winter. So we're going to talk about those and how you can get signed up to apply for those classes. Uh, and Moses and I have something to discuss beforehand, but first, we got to do this little sponsor bit here. This episode is brought to you by Mission Flight to Mars by V.A. Jeffrey. If you've heard this uh, once or twice before, so do come to our website, adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com, and you'll see an image right under the tile feature that we have at the top on the right side of the page for Mission Flight to Mars. This is a space opera novel. It is uh, part of a a two-book series so far, Um, and if you're interested in stories about uh, people who are out of their element and have to rise up to conquer circumstances out of their control somehow, some way, in a space opera setting, then this might be a book that you want to check out. So do come check it out, and uh, you can use the link on our homepage to go to the Amazon page if you want to pick up a copy. Flight, Mission to Mars, VA Jeffrey. So Moses, in our interview that we just did with Gene, and we didn't have time to delve deeper into this, so I thought I'd ask you about it now. Uh, We discuss piracy concerns with eBooks, and uh, Gene has some concerns that piracy could uh, not only continue, but increase as more and more publishing turns to eBooks. And I'm sure you have some thoughts on this as you have book two of your series, or uh, technically book one. <laughs> yeah, it's both. I'm sort of straddling the line there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're uh, getting that ready for publication next year. Um, so I just And we didn't have a chance in the interview to, to grab your thoughts on this, but I know you have some. So what are your thoughts on piracy and whether or not that could endanger authors' incomes more than already does if publishing turns more and more to strictly e-publishing? So I'm not sure if the move to e-publishing is the concern with with piracy. I think there's an argument for that. But uh, in some ways, at least what, what has been the case is that a lot of piracy has happened because e-books have been ex- too expensive. And it's the publishers a lot of times who want the books to be too expensive according to what most consumers think. Although we know that when you produce an e-book, you have the same cost almost uh, essentially as what you do when you make the physical book other than the physical book and shipping. But most of the costs... Are there for the ebook as well as uh, the print book. So, but e-publishing does allow you to do something like sell a book for three bucks or five bucks, and 
that that is one of our defenses against piracy. Really, like as an independent author, uh, if I sell a book at ten bucks, I know I'm going to be pirated more than if I sell it for three or five. Mm. Um, so the, I think that one could. I'm not sure. You know, that one kind of could go could go both ways. I just think in general, there's just a bigger trend toward piracy. I think people we're getting to a world where people more and more people. And then this starts with younger audiences uh, think that things should be free. Creative stuff should be free. I should be able to you know, download that thing on the internet, uh, stream it on the internet. And that's becoming the culture. Uh, and, and that is very, very uh, troubling. Uh, I, th- I, I think long term, I'm, I'm kind of getting more pessimistic uh, about, really? about that. Long term, you know, I think short term, I think there's still so much opportunity there. Um, you know, you can still decide to to do a lot in, in publishing and, and writing right now, whether you're independent or, or even with a publisher. Um, there's still a lot there. But, but 10 or 20 years from now, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think if... <laughs> I look at it like if you want to be a writer, do it fast. You know, <laughs> <laughs> get yourself established before the dam is broken. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, let's say 15 years from now, when it maybe it is going to be incredibly hard to get compensated for something that you write. How can you go into that endeavor? knowing that there's not going to be money there. Uh, because as an indie, indie author, I go at it now and thinking, well, if I just do pretty well, if I can sell a good number of books, I can hopefully make a decent amount of money and justify doing this. If that justification wasn't there, mm. I would not be able to write books. Um, so I'm hoping that, A, that you know, we, our culture decides that, you know what, we do need to reimburse artists. Uh, but frankly, that's pie in the sky at this point you know i, I don't i don't think it's really uh, gonna go that way but we have to keep saying it um there was a thread at reddit in the in the uh, fantasy forum the r fantasy forum that was about piracy and i heard it was really depressing um i didn't open the thread <laughs> literally because i was so afraid to read what i was going to read in there and i heard it was kind of kind of depressing just the number of people who were you know very staunch defending um uh, piracy and not seeming to understand that authors have to make money or else they can't write mm. um and uh, literally like that information would not have helped me right now in my career because I w- might have gotten discouraged by what I read there. So uh, I'm just sort of living in this world where, okay, I can do this hopefully and make some money and hopefully hit, hit an audience. Um, so I, I, I don't know. It's going to look different in the future. Uh, but there is an opportunity right now. you know. And so if you, ha- you want to be an artist, you want to be a writer, um, yes, piracy is an issue. Maybe your defense against that is not to price your stuff too high. Maybe being independent is the best defense against that. I don't know. I, I don't think that's going to be long-term is going to ha- save you either because uh, once a lot of people are just so used to that, it's going to be hard. But, but there are those good royalties. There are still those good royalties. You know, with all the major publishers, you're getting about sixty-five percent, roughly, um, between a lot of different places. And um, yeah, you know, a three-dollar ebook is is basically two bucks. A five-dollar ebook is basically uh, three bucks, right? And so it's in that it's in that range where there are still people buying a lot of those books. And um, right. uh, I think I think it's hurry up and write. You know. Oh man, protect yourself with price. Um, yeah, no, I can see where you're coming from with this. I'm one of those. I don't watch illegally downloaded movies. I know a lot of people who do. Like, oh, I have this movie on DVD. I'm like, that came out last week. Yeah, I know. You want to come watch it? I'm like, no, I don't. I mean, I'm not going to participate in it. I don't listen to downloaded or illegally downloaded music. I've, I don't even know how to find a pirated ebook. I wouldn't even know where to go. Um, but I can tell you this. Uh, Stargate Universe, or was it Stargate Atlantis? Either Atlantis or Universe. You know how big of a fan I am of Stargate, right, Moses? I mean, this has not been a secret kept away from the the podcast audience. Well, one of those shows, I think it was Atlantis, uh, probably would have stayed on the air longer if all the people who watched it 
both illegally and through iTunes downloads, which was legal, okay? But they weren't watching it live, which is what the network looks at. That, that show would have gone on for years longer. It was the most uh, pirated science fiction show on television at the time, if I remember my news correctly. And I was doing some writing for GateWorld at the time, so I do believe that's accurate. And it was the most number one downloaded science fiction show on iTunes, at least for, it, for its either its fourth or its fifth season. So those are, that's a lot of viewership that wasn't getting counted in the ratings, which is what determines if a show gets renewed or not. Whether we like it or not, that's still what they do. That's a big, now, I know a lot of folks say, hey, they make so much money, you know, they don't need my money, who cares, they're rich, I'm not, and everything. But you got to look at it, the big picture, and, and it all is going to come down uh, to those who really don't have the margin in the end. You know, you create that culture as you're talking about. Those who can at least afford to suffer under a system like that will suffer the most, and those that have the most will still be able to survive, right? It's just like anything else. Yeah, there was a really good uh, blog post. We should link to it on uh, Tim Knapper's blog. And it, it was using a lot of UK um, numbers, but basically he was looking at uh, some, some big trends in terms of, of uh, economics and just how, how hard economics are getting more and more for, uh, let's say, the 99%. You know? <laughs> and, and comparing that to writing and writing income, right? And writing income, harder to come by. Uh, although he did find that a lot of, I think... Um, I want to say it might have been 86% of indie, indie publishers say they would do that again, something like that. Hmm. So a lot of indie publishers are. And I saw another thing recently. Uh, I got some email from some site I've subscribed to that said that you know indie authors are happier with their experience than traditionally published authors, something like that. So I think there's still something there. But like generally, you know, money is getting harder to come by in writing. Economics are getting harder in general. And he was basically saying that... Um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, groups that aren't represented enough. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, women, people of color. You know, we're going to have some interviews coming up where we talk to some people about these issues, actually. Uh, but he said, you know, one of the great uh, areas that we're not talking about are uh, people don't, who don't have enough money. And that if you're someone who doesn't have money, um, you, can't, you can't afford to be a writer. If you don't come from that privilege mm. of having wealth, it's going to be increasingly difficult for someone to want to be a writer. And... Um, that was a really interesting article, so I think we should put that in the show notes here, too. We will. Can you send it to me? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Uh, so, folks, we would uh, value your thoughts on this as well. Of course, we're going to talk more about this in the interview coming up right now. Um, but please do send us your thoughts. You know, in the past, past a few years ago, we started really pushing uh, feedback through our social media channels and whatnot. And I was thinking recently, I would like to get uh, some more feedback for the show and to get some listener voices back into the show like we used to. So we don't have the voicemail line reestablished yet, but if you want to record an MP3 and send it to us, please do, and we will play it in the show. And Moses and hopefully Brent can join us as well. We'll get together and we'll discuss uh, your thoughts and your feedback. Just try to keep it around, uh, I would say, 90 seconds or less um, as a space is limited in, in uh, each episode, of course. But that would be great, great. And you could just send us an email as well, adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com. We could read your comment back that way. Um, if you would like a voicemail line available, let me know. Put a, put a comment on the website, send me an email, and we can get that up and running again like we used to in the old days. Uh, so Moses, thanks for uh, your thoughts on that. Unless you had something else, we'll go ahead and jump into the interview. Let's do it. Here we go. Today, as it is still in the heart of uh, NaNoWriMo, well, by the time we post this, it will be at the tail end of NaNoWriMo, but still close enough, we thought we would continue the theme that we began 
in episode 279 when we talked about publishing and writing with Kevin J. Anderson and David Farland and Doug Dandridge. And today we're going to talk writing with the founder of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, Jean Covellos. Now, Jean began her professional career as an astrophysicist and mathematician teaching astronomy, but soon her love for science fiction led her to earn an MFA in creative writing. Jean has become, uh, then became a senior editor at Bantam Doubleday Dell, where she created and launched the Abyss imprint of innovative horror and the cutting-edge imprint of noir literary fiction. And she also won the World Fantasy Award and ran the Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing Program. And some of the authors she edited includes William F. Nolan, Joan Vingy, Tanith Lee, and Poppy Z. Bright, to name just a couple. Uh, Jean uh, left New York to find balance that would allow her to do her own writing and work in a more in-depth way with writers. And she runs the Jean Cavellos Editorial Services, a full-service freelance company that provides editing, ghostwriting, consulting, critiquing services to publishers, book book packagers, agents, authors, you name it. Um, She's worked with some major publishers and best-selling and award-winning writers. Now, some of her own books include The Passing of the Technomagus Trilogy, set in the Babylon 5 universe, as well as The Science of Star Wars and The Science of the X-Files. All right, Jean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Oh, oh, by the way, I should say uh, Moses is still with us. Hi, Moses. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Um, Jean, we have a lot of questions uh, to throw at you here. Um, but, you know, since you've never been on the show before, I'd love to just kind of start at the beginning. And if you could tell us a little bit about the founding of Odyssey, which I believe was in 1996, and what inspired you to uh, want to put such a big program like that together? Yeah, um, well, um, as you mentioned, I had gotten my MFA in creative writing. And when I went through that experience, um, Really, none of the teachers and none of the other students wrote fantasy, science fiction, or horror. It was me, the weird girl, writing the science fiction novel, and everybody else writing literary fiction. So I didn't quite fit in. They, you know, they were tolerant of me, and they tried to help me. Uh, and I learned a lot about style in that program, but I didn't really learn whether my science fiction was fresh or different or my world building was effective or where I fit in the genre, um, how I could introduce technology and other elements into the story without, you know, stopping the story with a giant info dump and things like that. And so as time went on and I worked in publishing, um, I realized how much more helpful that program could have been if it had been staffed by teachers who loved science fiction, fantasy, and horror and believed in those genres as valid and important art forms and that it had been filled with students who also loved and wrote in those genres. So when I left publishing and wanted to focus on my writing, I really wanted to find some way to keep working with writers because I loved that. I loved that all through my MFA program, you know, critiquing the works of other writers in the program and as an editor working with authors. Um, And part of it was my science and math background. Critiquing is actually a lot like problem solving, like solving a math problem. Hmm. And so I love reading a story and trying to think about, you know, how could this be better or what's missing? You know, there's something in here that's not working. What is it? What could be changed to make it work? 
And so um, that's something I think I'm pretty good at and I love doing. So anyway, I thought if I could create a program like an MFA program, but totally focused on fantasy science fiction horror and with teachers and students who loved those genres, um, how great it would be and what a wonderful opportunity that would be for me to get to work with writers in a more in-depth way than publishing really allows. So 96, so you're coming up on, uh, gosh, what are we at here, 18 years now? No, this summer will be our 20th year. So, okay, my 2015. bad. 2015, that's okay. okay. <laughs> 95 to 2000, that'll be 20, so you're at 19 years now, and um, I'm sure things have changed a lot over that time period. Um, can you discuss some of the big changes that have happened for Odyssey over that time? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, like we do a lot more emailing of our information to people than I used to put everything in envelopes and mail it out back in 1996. Um, the the workshop's gone through lots of changes. I think in the first year in 1996, we had class for about an hour and a half a day. Now we have class for four hours a day, and we often have special afternoon and evening sessions to to cram in more information and material because over the 20 years um, I have just added and added um, more more examples, more insights as I have learned things and as I have seen what helps students. Um, So there's a lot more to it. Um, Back at the beginning we didn't have a writer in residence and now we do. Um, We started that in 1998 where we have a guest writer come for one week out of the six weeks and teach for that whole week and work with the students so that they can provide their unique insights um, to the students. Prior to that, we just had a guest lecturer come in each week who spends about 24 hours uh, at the workshop. And so we still do that for the other five weeks. We have the guest lecturer come in one evening and then they spend the next day lecturing and critiquing and meeting with students. Um, So that's really helpful, but the writer-in-residence staying a week really allows for more more in-depth feedback and just allowing the students to interact more with the writer. One of the big things that students get out of Odyssey is that they see that writers are human beings like they are, and successful writers are human beings just like they are, and that they, that gives them hope that they can do it too that successful writers are not some kind of strange, exotic creatures that, you know, were just born typing out brilliant prose, um, but that had to learn and struggle. And so hearing those stories of how they struggled and what they struggled with and how they overcame it um, really helps helps the students a lot. Um, some other changes we made. Uh, these days I read two stories and critique two stories by each student So when they arrive at Odyssey, I already know a lot about their strengths and weaknesses. And then in the first week, I read another story by them. And then we meet and I talk about what I've seen in common among those three pieces, the strengths and weaknesses. And we set goals for what's the biggest weakness to attack and how are we going to attack it and go from there. So I think we just are much more um, active and making progress from the get-go. We're on the ground running. 
That's cool. Yeah. It makes it very personalized. Go ahead, Moses. Yeah, quick question. Have you, you're a 501c company. So has that been there all along or did that come along? Oh, later? no, that's, that's a great question. Thank you, Moses. Um, yeah, that was a huge change. In 2010, we became a nonprofit organization. Um, before that, um, we were just a sole proprietorship, like a regular company. And I kind of thought that, you know, people would come and they'd pay tuition and that would cover the expenses. But the reality is um, that if you want to have a workshop that breaks even or makes money, you need to have like a weekend week sh- workshop for 500 students. If you have a six-week workshop for 15 students, it does not make money and it can't cover the expenses. I would have to charge such high tuition that, you know, it would be more whoever would come would just be the people who, who were very rich rather than the people who really have the passion for it. So becoming a nonprofit allowed us to um, take in donations and keep the tuition as low as possible. I know it's still a lot of money, um, but we do our best to keep it as low as possible. And so many of the graduates support the workshop with donations. It's really wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. I never in my wildest dreams thought that this would become the kind of community um, that it has with the support between graduates and the great energy and um, exchange of ideas that goes on. You know, we have online groups where graduates keep in touch and critique each other's work and things like that. I just thought I would teach a cool class for six weeks in the summer and that would be fun. Um, but it's become so much more than that. It really is this great community of people. Congratulations. That's beautiful. Oh, thanks. You mentioned some of the uh, writers that you had, uh, where they come in and they see that the professional writers are real human beings too and had struggles in the past. And I was looking through some of your uh, alumni list from the early classes, and Carrie Vaughn is, I think, in the second year, if I remember correctly. And she had a little quote that on there, about the workshop saying that it helped her recognize some of her weaknesses so that she could correct them moving forward. I would say that worked pretty well for her. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you look at those first few years compared to now, we have, as you might suspect, we have a lot of aspiring writers who listen to the show, and I'm sure they want to know this. Um, what did you used to look for in a candidate's application when deciding who to admit, and what do you look for now, and has it changed at all uh, over the last 20 years? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I'm sure it's changed. I think I have always valued originality a lot. Um, The sense that a writer has something unique to say and is attempting to say it rather than, and I, I believe everyone has something unique to say, but lots of times writers get inspired by other writers And so then they're really attempting to say something that somebody else has said already and better um, because they like that story and they want to emulate it. So for me, seeing like a a little gem of this is something important to this person, this idea, this world, this character, this conflict, something in there is unique and powerful, carrying the passion of the writer, that means a lot to me. It's easy for me to teach, you know, to write a strong opening line or to 
the, you know, a character has to have an internal conflict or whatever. There's a lot of concepts that are, you know, not that hard to learn, but you can't really teach that. And I think it, it arises out of, you know, personal experience and um, a, someone searching to really express themselves. So that's been important to me all along. I think probably I um, I look at characters more strongly now than I used to. Hmm. Um, for me, I'm kind of a plot person. Um, I mean, I love characters, but I know that most writers struggle with plot more than anything. And so I'm usually looking for... Uh, some kind of some sign that there's a plot there and that the character is off the couch and attempting to do something. Um, there's so many stories where characters are just sitting around. They don't want anything, but they have to be dragged and pulled and people manipulate them and force them into situations. And that's not as interesting as a character who's struggling to achieve a goal. Mm. So that's pretty important to me as well, but, but can be taught. Um, basically most writers need to hear that lesson is that their character needs to have a goal that he is struggling to achieve. Um, and it doesn't matter whether the goal is big or small, but it has to be a struggle and maybe he won't achieve it and maybe he will. And that's going to create suspense and then we'll care. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I think what's more important to me is that individual element Maybe you, you might call it theme um, and also some sense of a plot that moves forward, um, something I can care about. Right. And it would be nice if they can write a sentence, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's optional, though, right? <laughs> That's something that takes a lot of time to teach, and, and we don't have so much time in the six weeks to teach grammar right. and things like that. So I kind of need people to have some skills in that area before they come. Sure. sure. Yeah, I'm sure folks are wondering, uh, besides geographic location, uh, how, what would you say are the differences between Odyssey and Clarion? which also has a six-week program. Yep. Um, Well, when I decided that I wanted to create Odyssey, I wanted it to be something different than what was already available um, so that it would offer people a a choice and a different kind of learning opportunity. Um, So the biggest difference is that I'm the primary instructor at Odyssey, and I'm there for all six weeks. So you have me beforehand reading the stories and critiquing them. You have me throughout the six weeks meeting with you privately, telling you at the beginning, here's what your strengths and weaknesses are. Here's the weaknesses I think that you need to work on the most. What do you think? Let's work on this. And then in the middle, evaluating again, okay, how'd you do on fixing that problem? Have you strengthened that area? If so, let's move on to a new area. And then at the end, letting you know where you stand, what are the still the weak areas, which ones have you conquered, which ones do you need to work on. So that um, although the guest writers come and go, you're getting feedback from me through the whole thing. So then I can tell you, you've really improved on this or you haven't. You've tried, but it didn't quite work. And here's what I think about it. And so here's maybe how you could make it better next time. Mm. Um, and I think that can be very helpful. Uh, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it work. And, um, and the students really 
appreciate that. Um, so that's one thing because Clarion has different instructor each week and so you don't get that continuity of feedback. You don't really know if you have addressed a problem that a previous instructor told you. Um, another difference is that uh, we allow um, students to work on novels if they want to and at Clarion the last I heard they don't allow that. Um, certainly writers learn faster if they write short stories uh, because you can see the whole thing. You can see whether it was a success or failure and in what ways it failed and, and then try again. But some writers are simply not inspired to write short. Their ideas are big and they have to write long. So in that case, I don't want to force anyone to write short stories that they don't care about, then have them ripped apart and then make them rewrite them or write another short story they don't care about. So I think it's really important that the author care deeply about the material. It does make getting the feedback more painful, but it also makes the writer more determined to solve those problems mm -hmm. and find the answers. The other big difference, I would say, is that we have a, at Odyssey, um, since I'm there teaching for the whole six weeks, except for the days that these guest lecturers come in and, and the week of the writer-in-residence, um, we have a comprehensive curriculum. So I cover all the major areas of fiction writing, you know, from world-building to characterization to plot to style to everything, so that you get a really strong, advanced knowledge of how fiction works and what you need to do to make your fiction work over the six weeks. Uh, we have like two hours of lecture a day, and it's usually more like two and a half hours of lecture a day. Um, whereas what I understand at Clarion is that they have much shorter lectures, and it's more up to the interests of the individual instructors what topics are covered. So you might have the same topic covered multiple times and other topics not covered. Um, so that's, I think those are the major differences. And uh, another one is that you're offering um, online courses, right? Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which, yes. Is, uh, which is cool because I, I, I remember looking at Odyssey um, before I was even a part of this podcast and you know, way back when and just getting started with writing science fiction and fantasy. And I, I wanted to go so bad and I was like, oh, I don't think I can make my wife come to New Hampshire with me for six weeks, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so Some it's, have succeeded at that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just really exciting to see um, about your online courses and uh, we're curious about your experience with that and uh, yeah if you could just talk about that for a bit. Sure we started those in 2010. Um, I, I had heard from many people like you who wanted to attend the six-week workshop and were just frustrated and saying you know can't you make it shorter than six weeks and I'm like well I wish I could you know, make it shorter, it would be easier for me. I get like three hours of sleep a night during the six weeks of Odyssey. It would be nice if that was only two weeks, but it, it can't be done. I mean, some other workshop could be taught in two weeks, but not covering all the areas that we do. And then some people say, you know, I can't get away from my job. I can't get away from my family. I have obligations. And so I was getting a lot of emails like that and I was feeling very bad about it. And I thought, okay, if we offer online classes, then almost anybody can attend. I mean, you have to have time to do the homework and critique your classmates' 
pieces and things like that, but almost anybody could attend. Um, I wanted them to not be like a lot of the online courses that I see, which I think are, you know, they give you some text to read and they give you some exercises to do, but it doesn't seem very in-depth or involving. And a lot of what I've found over the years is that most of the writers that I work with have read numerous books on writing. And so a lot of the ideas that I'm presenting are not that radically different from ideas they've already heard. But hearing it from a voice speaking to them and being able to discuss it and go back and forth and then do work on it and discuss it some more is a different, more engaging experience. And so the ideas get incorporated into the writer's process rather than they read the book and put it aside and go back to writing the same way they did before. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change anything. So I didn't want to have an online course that was almost like reading a book. Um, So I wanted to um, have live classes. We have live class meetings. We use GoToMeeting. Everybody's there at class time, just like you're in a real classroom, um, so that we can have this experience where you participate in discussions, you can ask questions, you can answer questions. Uh, It's much more active, and I think that helps the material to sink in. Um, Then we have, um, so we have like 90-minute class meetings, and we usually have in our courses three class meetings, and they're two weeks apart. So you have a class meeting, then you get homework, you turn in your assignment a week later, and then you, for the next week, you critique some of your classmates' assignments, and the teacher, who is me or somebody else, um, critiques all of the students' assignments. And so then when you come to the next class meeting, you've had all of this email correspondence and gotten critiqued and had discussions online Uh, about the topic so that now you're ready to take the next step and we can go on from there. So it's really, it's been a great experience. The first year, I was not very smart about it. I did two short class meetings. I did them 60 minutes and they were each week. And so that didn't quite work as well as these 90 minutes, two weeks apart works much better. And actually this year I'm offering, my course is going to be two hours long. Um, we'll have the three class meetings two weeks apart, but I'm a, I'm a long-winded person, as you might be gathering from this conversation. <laughs> um, so that really helps me and, and gives more time for question and answer. Um, so uh, we've been offering, in 2010, we just offered one course that I taught. And then after that, we've been offering three courses a year. They're all in the winter because I'm obviously tied up in the summer with the in-person workshop. And I just want to keep them very high quality. So we don't, our goal is not to offer a lot of classes or to, um, you know, have huge numbers of students. We limit each course to 14 students. So everybody gets lots of individual attention. We do only three courses a year. I teach one and then I get two other um, people who I think are great writers and teachers to um, teach the other ones. Um, This year I'm doing my showing versus telling in fantastic fiction course, which um, I've done a couple times before and the students really, really love it. Um, That's a skill that I think is so important that most writers just don't understand. Uh, And then once they do, it's, their writing improves hmm. by leaps and bounds. It's, it's amazing. Can you give us a little teaser about what you cover in there? 
Uh, sure. Um, so, um, first we talk about what really is showing and te- what is really telling because people, I tell you, they don't understand it. Um, and then we talk about the fact that showing and telling are on a spectrum. They're the two ends of a spectrum of how you describe things. Do you show them vividly using sensory details or do you tell us about them using abstractions and judgments? And if you show them to us, then we can experience them vividly. We can feel like we're there. It brings the settings to life. It makes your characters more vivid and immediate. It puts the reader in the middle of the action. Um, It can emphasize the most important ideas and moments because showing slows things down and makes them more intense. And it can convey powerful emotions. And then when things are not so important and you are not in the middle of an important uh, big action scene or character moment and you want to hurry up and get to the next interesting part, then you want to tell. You want to use abstractions and judgments because it's not worth filling up a page with details of this thing that isn't important. Hmm. So it's a lot about realizing what, what's important in your work and what's less important and emphasizing and bringing to life those important things. That's cool. So you, um, I've seen that you also offer uh, editing services. So you run uh, Gene Cavalos Editorial Services, a full-service freelance company providing editing, ghostwriting, consulting, and critiquing services uh, to all sorts of people. Um, I gather from your web presence with that that you're not necessarily trying to promote that too much because I've seen you mention it a few places, but I can't seem to find like a – a page about it, you know, like with, you know, <laughs> right. Uh oh. Like <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's one of those things that I was very active in uh, back in 1996 when I started Odyssey. And then Odyssey started to grow and grow and grow. And then we did the critique service. And then we did the online classes and we did the podcasts. And now we do the weekly salon. And Um, So as that has grown, my ability to take on editorial clients has diminished. Uh, I just don't have the time to dedicate to it anymore. So basically my clients are made up these days of people I've worked with before, people I know, um, people who beg me really bad (laughs) for help (laughs) because I just don't have the time anymore. Um, Odyssey is a crazy job that takes up most of my life. Um, so there's not a lot of time for the editing anymore. I, I try to help out people I know who, you know, who need, need help. They're in a jam or they need fresh eyes on a project or they need some brainstorming or something like that. Um, but I'm not doing too much of it anymore. Yes. So I don't really need to promote it because I'm kind of constantly turning people away as it is and hopefully sending them to other people who are as good. (laughs) Gene, what are the other two classes that will be offered this winter? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so Odyssey, um, I mentioned my class, The Showing versus Telling. We're also offering <clears throat> a course I'm very excited about called One Brick at a Time, Crafting Compelling Scenes. And this is being taught by Barbara Ashford, who is an award-winning novelist, as well as an Odyssey graduate. She took the workshop back in 2000. Um, and she's taught for us for the last 
the previous two years, and she's gotten some of our highest ratings for any of the teachers. So um, the students find her really, really helpful and engaging, and she brings a lot of unique content, her own insights, and a lot of research into what makes scenes work. So in this, in this course, she's going to be talking about scene structure. What do you need to have in each scene in your story or novel? And most writers have no idea about that. They think, well, I'll, I'll tell what happened next, and maybe some conflict should be going on. But really, they don't, they don't know the ingredients, the basic ingredients that each scene needs to have. For example, each scene should show a change of significance between the beginning and the end of the scene. Something that matters to the main character should change. So maybe he goes from freedom to imprisonment, he goes from love to hate, or he goes from uh, wealth to poverty. (laughs) Any of those things would be changes of significance. And it's very hard to write a story in which each scene has something like that. But that's what you need to shoot for. That's how you create strong scenes. Um, There's many other ingredients that scenes need to have. Um, We we want to see the setting, obviously, establish the point of view, have the characters feeling particular emotions and have those emotions change somehow. Um, Barbara's going to be talking about the different shapes that different types of scenes can have. Um, You know, there's um, two types that people talk about, which are kind of confusing, are the scene and the sequel. Um, And I know it's silly to have a type of scene called a scene. (laughs) It would be better if there was another word for that. Maybe you call it an active scene Hmm. versus a sequel. Uh, But in the active scene, the character is struggling to achieve his goal, and he... um, either fails or succeeds in some way that makes a significant difference. Uh, In the sequel, it's more about the reaction to that success or failure that he had in the previous scene, perhaps. So then the character might have an emotional reaction. He might intellectually then try to figure out, do I need to change my goal? Do I need to change my approach to the goal? Uh, You know, how am I going to move forward from here, and then decide on a course of action. So the sequel is a more passive type of scene, and one that you don't want to use too often because it, it involve, it's very interior, and it's not really moving the story ahead except within the character's head. Um, often they're, they're condensed into just a couple of sentences within an active scene, hmm. um, or they're skipped over and we just see, oh, the character decided to change his method of robbing the bank and now he's going to sneak in through the sewer or something. And we don't really need to go through the mental process with him. We can kind of figure it out from what we see him doing. So anyway, she's going to be talking about different types of scenes, different shapes of scenes, um, exploring the characteristics of effective scenes. What are the pitfalls that writers commonly fall into? Um, How can they be fixed? Um, What are some of the special needs of opening scenes and closing scenes, which are the most important scenes in the story? Um, And then how does each scene fit into the whole? So I think it's going to be a great course on something that um, writers often don't spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what 
what are the needs of each scene. Um, our third course is Effective Endings in Speculative Fiction, taught by C.C. Finley. And I'm just so excited to have Charlie as one of our teachers this winter, because I've been hearing for years about how awesome he is. Like, he holds these workshops at conventions, and he's taught at other places, and I hear he is so great in his critiques and his teaching. Um, so I just grabbed him up, and I said, please teach a course for us, and he said, okay. Uh, and then he said, I want to do it on endings, and I was so happy because endings are the hardest thing in a story. Um, I'm sure you know that uh, it's not that hard to create an interesting beginning, and then you can build a little bit in the middle, but finding the right ending, yeah. oh my gosh, yeah, it's, you gotta, it's got to be surprising, so we don't see it coming, but it also has to feel inevitable. So we say, oh yes, of course, that's what must have happened. I didn't see it coming, but now that I see it, now that I'm here, yes, that is what must have happened. Otherwise, it'll feel random, and we won't accept it. It'll feel uh, like the author forced this ending upon the story, and it's not the right one. So we have to have that sort of feeling of inevitability, that this is the only thing that could have happened, but we just didn't see it coming. So I'm really excited about him focusing on that. I think it's a really hard topic to teach. And so I'm glad he's taking it on. And uh, I think it's going to be a huge help to writers. So I have a general question for you. And uh, feel free to be brutally honest on this one. Um, <laughs> what is your, 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 your actual feeling about um, publishing today, people getting into writing today? A lot of things are changing, obviously. Um, where, where does your gut how does your gut feel about that today? Um, well, my my gut changes like each year, really. This thing has been such a crazy ride with the whole transformation of the publishing industry and how that's been going. Um, but I read recently that young people are reading more than they ever have before. Um, and they're reading more than older people, which really surprised me. Um so that gave me a lot of hope for the future of writing and publishing in whatever form. Um, that people still want great stories. They still want to be transported and have adventures with characters they can care about and to read stories that are deeply meaningful and convey internal journeys that resound with their own experiences and make them feel like they're not alone um, that those things are still important to people. And whatever form they end up having, um, we still will need storytellers, and I hope that there will still be a method for them to receive payment for their creations. Uh, I mean, that's the big danger, is if everything gets pirated, then you know writers are going to be starving even more than they are now, and they won't be able to create their stories because they'll have to go get another job um, or several jobs and support themselves that way. But things seem to be, I think the industry is adapting. We're seeing a lot of changes, and I think that's a good thing. I'm concerned about the consolidation of power within the hands of a few entities, um, and so I hope that that is countered in some way and that we're able to maintain a diverse 
publishing ecosystem where there's a lot of ways for people to get their work out there and there's a lot of ways that readers go to get books. Um, I was just reading also that most books, most physical books are still bought in bookstores. I was kind of surprised to learn, like 59% of them. Um, So that's also hopeful because I think the more books become electronic, the more pirating is going to go on and the more difficulty is going to arise that way. And also the more e-books are around, I think the more consolidation of power is going to happen. Okay, I'm saying Amazon, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying it. (laughs) I was going to say, I assume you're referring to distribution and retail, not so much the publishing house. Right, right. Well, we can already bypass the publishing house if we want to. Yeah, exactly. And there's also a proliferation of publishers. I mean, so many small publishers have cropped up. Now, many of them dealing with e-books, which is wonderful, and some of them dealing with physical books as well. So I think there's this great um, bursting forth of publishers, which is terrific. Um, But, yeah, we need the retailers – to remain diverse. Um, and I think that's, I think that's going to happen. I think that's going to get, there's going to be more changes coming. Like Harper Collins recently started a program, uh, with authors that if you sell your book that, you know, if they publish your book and you agree to, to have it available on their website and sold through their website, the Harper Collins book selling website, then you get higher royalties for any books that sell from there versus books that sell from elsewhere. Hmm. Um, so that seems like maybe a positive move. I don't know. So they're a sort of, of experimenting with becoming retailers themselves. Exactly. Exactly. That's an interesting way to go. I mean, cause yeah. you, you would still want your books on Amazon because you wouldn't want to cut yourself off from that, uh, that revenue stream. Uh, so that would be real, the real challenge, right, is to change readers' habits to come by from your website instead of where they're accustomed to. Exactly. And, you know, if Amazon has everything and HarperCollins only has HarperCollins books, then, you know, it's probably easier to go to Amazon. But if you are a fan of that author and you're clicking on their link to go buy their book, their link could take you to the HarperCollins website. Mm. Um, so yeah, it would be. It's at this point, it would be a challenge to change readers' habits. Um, at one point, the the big publishers, several of the big publishers, were trying to launch their own website to counter Amazon, but that seemingly has fizzled. Um, so we'll see what happens. But I certainly think that people are still going to want to read good books, and there will be publishers out there and individuals who want to self-publish to get their books out there. Uh, it's just a matter of, I guess, how the, how the retail end is going to shake out and what, in, what, that's gonna, what impact that will have on writers and how much revenue they receive for their work. Being in the business that you're in and training writers too, there's a whole other level to this because if – uh, profits go down for writers, they're going to be less inclined to want to invest uh, financially in their craft if they don't see a rate of return that could come back to them. So if piracy does uh, you know, proliferate and, and have major impact on, on people's ability to earn an income, then that creates a whole other set of problems for those who are teaching and providing related services. 
Right, that's very true. Um, and in, in addition to the piracy thing, I mean, it's also that if we lose the diversity of retailers, if it does just become basically, you know, Amazon and a couple of other big websites selling books, then they're not going to offer good terms that allow the author, you know, right now they're, well, I can't even say right now they're being nice because they stopped being nice <laughs> recently. At least they were not nice to Hachette. But, um, you know, they have tried to create a good relationship with writers and to say they're the writer's friend and all of this stuff. But once they have all the power, then they can do whatever they want, basically. Um, so that's that's another issue with how much writers will make from their work. Um, but you're right in a way that, you know, if you can't see making a living from your writing, what are you doing going to a writing workshop or taking a course that costs money and takes time out of your life uh, if you're not going to see any return on it? The way in which that's not quite valid is that writers have never seen much return on their work. And writers are just crazy enough to want to write anyway. <laughs> right? We have these characters in our heads. They're doing things. We want to get them out. We need to get them onto the paper, or into the screen. Um, so so it's, not, it's not really a rational decision. I don't think it's ever been a very rational decision for a writer to, say, get an MFA or go to a workshop or c- devote a... a, sp- a a lot of their lives or money to writing. Uh, it's really an artistic calling, I think, that people feel the need to pursue. Um, and, you know, they might hope that they become bestsellers and make a decent amount of money. But like acting, you know, there's a few who make a lot, and then there's some who make enough, and then there's a lot who make very little. Right. Uh, and I think most most of the writers that I work with, anyway, accept that and are not maybe dreaming for bestsellerdom, but are not planning on it. Hmm. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> <It's like> a- <laughs> I I did have a student once who she quit her job, she gave up her apartment, she packed all her belongings in her car. And came to Odyssey, and to the to the summer workshop. And I didn't know this until the last day. I saw her leaving, and I said, "You have a lot of stuff in your car." And she said, "Yeah, that's all my belongings. That's everything I have, and I have a hundred dollars left in my pocket, and that's it. I have no job, and I have no home." And I'm so glad. This is the best thing I ever did in my life. I'm so happy I came. And I just felt like, oh, my God, I don't want to be responsible for whatever happens to you. (laughs) I mean, that was just one of the bravest and craziest and most wonderful things uh, that I had ever heard. Did she make it? (laughs) Yes, she she made it. She is happy. She has a home. She has a family. She has a job. She's she's very happy. Uh, So so it's all okay. Okay. (laughs) This could be a horrible way to end this interview, depending on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jean, we we do need to go ahead and wrap this up, but I want to thank you for coming on to to talk with us about the workshop and the the courses that are coming up this winter, Uh, folks. You can check this out at odysseyworkshop.org, and I know the um, deadline for the application is coming up early December, right? 
Yes, each course has a different deadline. Mine is December 6th, and uh, the scene, scene structure course is December 9th, and then the effective endings course deadline is December 26th. So please, if you're interested, jump on over there, and uh, the application's online. It's easy to fill out. And there's obviously no guarantee that you can get into the class because spots are limited. So there is going to be a little bit of competition to get in. Um, so make sure you present your best stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the courses are aimed at at writers at different levels, like the effective endings courses for more advanced writers, the showing versus telling courses for more um, intermediate or maybe even some beginners who are good. Uh, so, you know, that's why we do the application process to try to pick the right students for each class. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, was there anything else, Jean, that you wanted to make sure we talked about before we signed off? Uh, I guess I'll just mention while we're talking about application deadlines that if you're interested in next summer's workshop, the deadline for that is April 8th. And who's your writer resident going to be? Kiz Johnson. She oh. is an amazing teacher. Yes, she's another one that I've heard about for years, and I finally grabbed her and got awesome. her. Yes. Yeah, we've had her on the show before. Hey, Gene, I'm going to squeeze another question out with uh, 20 seconds or less here. Uh, your, your, favorite, your favorite book that you like to recommend uh, on, for writing, you know, an on writing type of book, what do you like to recommend there? Ooh, good question. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. Uh, you can do I, three. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it harder now. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, Dynamic Characters by Nancy Kress. Story by Robert McKee, and uh, maybe Characters and Viewpoint by Orson Scott Card. I have two of those. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I might have all those on my shelf. i got to go double check. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, if you don't have those books, we will put the links in the show notes so you can go to Amazon and buy them. Oh, what did I just do? Okay, um, after our Amazon discussion. Uh, but, but seriously, <laughs> I will do that. We get a little kickback if you buy through, through adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com. Ding! Um, and of course, we'll put in the, all the, web, the websites we talked about today for odysseyworkshop.org. So if you forget, uh, just, or you don't, you don't know how to spell Odyssey, just come to our website, and the link will be there for you to use. So Gene, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Uh, I can't believe how quickly the time went by. It was a blast talking with you. Me too. This was so much fun. Thank you, guys. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.